the depth you seem to go into about so many people. Um, this feels like this was maybe um, decades of research. Um, am I right there? Um, yeah, I was on this subject for a long time, and, it, and I went something like seven years since my last book came out. So uh, I did put a lot of work into it. So let me ask you, um, are you a Rosicrucian, or did you think about being a Rosicrucian? Is that what took you to these more esoteric topics? Well, the interesting thing about Rosicrucianism is that it's um, it's not a religion, and it, it's usually made up of groups of people, some large, some small, that have like beliefs. And in the way that um, I have an open mind about religion and uh sometimes a closed mind about some of the things that passes history, um, I could con consider myself um, relative to a Rosicrucian. The, the, early Rosicrucians okay. the early Rosicrucians had no uh, membership list, um, but they, they just met in circles of people, and, uh, and they did a lot of this writing and um, proposed things on alchemy and uh, researching different scientific topics. So, so let me ask you, and you know, and as I was trying to get through your book, um, that that one thing seemed to be um, what eluded me, and maybe I haven't gotten to it yet, but I didn't really get a sense that. Um, you know, the book was explaining who the Rosicrucians were as far as their beliefs go. I got that, you know, they were, um, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, elite white men who were very learned for their time. You know, uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, Francis Bacon and, uh, you know, a lot of the founding fathers and, uh uh, John Dee and, um, you know, the the School of Night and the Order of the Helmet and, you know, all of these, uh, all of these people. And I understand they, you know, a lot of them were alchemists. And, you know, I think most of us have an idea, you know, that alchemy wasn't just about, um, you know, turning uh, elements into gold, that it, you know, it, there, there was more esoteric meaning there. And um, each of these guys, you know, sort of had their focus, you know, what science they were in. But what was it about Rosicrucianism? I mean, what was the thread um, or the overarching umbrella of belief that makes a person a Rosicrucian? One, I think it's um, the esoteric side is uh, like the saying, to know yourself, the Oracle of Delphi, and uh, and to transform yourself into uh, something more focused or better or um, a better being overall. The uh, alchemy was is actually the word from chemical, and basically um, it was kind of against rules. Like even Columbus had to go uh, to the Inquisition when he proposed a trip across the ocean. They didn't believe that there was anything there. And then the worst side of it was that the uh, Catholics and Protestants were so at war with each other, and this went on for a, at least a century. And uh, and just St. Bartholomew's Day, 1572, 30,000 French Huguenots, which were um, Protestants, were killed. And so it, it's you can imagine the horror. 
And then uh, people that were considered Catholics in hiding in England could be arrested and jailed or executed. So it was, um, if you had an open mind, um, you better have a closed circle of friends rather than advertise it. So would you say then um, one of the tenants was they were against um, the you know organized religion in the form it took back then? I guess today it would be fundamentalist religion. Uh, probably would be the uh, ever since uh, Saint Paul um, preached, women have been kind of drowned out of of uh, the. Christian faith, and uh, St. Bernard tried to bring that back by um, glorifying uh, Mary Magdalene and the Mother Mary, and uh, he visited sites and, and all that um, all over Europe, and he was, you know, behind the Templar order um, growing, and the Templars kind of, when they got run out of the church, they grew into the Freemasons, and uh, the Freemasons had the same thought. They may not have had less of a religious thought, but um, they still were different. They were a little bit of a democracy in comparison to everything else. And then Freemasons um, became uh, different groups. The groups that were Rosicrucian were usually people that were a handful of um, near royalty or royalty, um, learned people, writers, and um, and so they had the need to keep things uh, kind of quiet from everybody else. No, I, I get that. I get that because, you know, their beliefs weren't, you know, didn't jive with the, the dictators of the day, certainly didn't jive with the church. Uh, you know, they could have been, you know, thrown in the dungeon or burned at the stake, I would imagine. Uh, but, you know, I hadn't, uh, I was really intrigued about St. Bernard, um, not just for the fact that I actually, that's where I was, I actually lived the first 20 years of my life in a parish in Louisiana called St. Bernard. Uh, and I never bothered to even look into who he was. And so in your book, I discovered that he, uh, is very uh, goddess feminine oriented. Um, is there any more you can tell us about uh, him in case listeners might want to go Google him after our interview? Um, there's a lot of mysterious things that the church doesn't really want to talk about. Like he supposedly drank the milk of Mother Mary from a statue um, and strange things like that. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to have to Google him and find out more. Um, so uh, you know, let's get this out of the way, and then we'll get more into the nitty-gritty of your book. Um, I know there were a few women alchemists. Um, it, it, so did that mean there were probably some women Rosicrucians as well? Um, one person that I would think is Mary uh, Sidney, the Countess of Pembroke. Uh, she married the Earl of Pembroke. She was the daughter of Sir Henry Sidney, a famous writer, and uh, she was a favorite of Elizabeth. She was probably the second smartest woman in England, and uh, she had her her group called the Wilton House, and she sponsored um, writers Spencer, uh, John Davies, uh, Michael Drayton, Samuel De um, Daniel, and... Uh, her life story is really interesting. Um, one writer said that she probably wrote Shakespeare, or at least they protected the works of Shakespeare at Pembroke. So uh, she was in that circle. She 
she also she hunted, she bowled, um, she knitted. She just was, was an overall um, renaissance woman, if anything. Right, right. Well, she also shows up in the uh, the All Souls trilogy as well. Um, so one of the other things I found really interesting, and maybe it's just my own ignorance. I, you know, I'm happy to admit it that you know we can't all know everything about everything, <laughs> and certainly English history is not my strong suit. But I was amazed to find out that Queen Elizabeth the First, who's known as the Virgin Queen, actually had a child. And her child was Sir Francis Bacon. Is that is that well known, or is that just um, one of those little it is uh, little well known, known tidbits? The uh, uh, Robert Dudley, um, I'm forgetting his title. Robert Dudley is the Earl of Southampton. Uh, he grew up in the Tower with uh, Queen Elizabeth before she was queen. They were both uh, outcasts. And Elizabeth was worried about her sister having her killed. So they became uh, close forever. And then when she became queen, Robert Dudley moved into the castle. Uh, He often would sleep in her bedquarters. And this was in letters from the Spanish envoy to uh, England that how close they are, that, you know, he's concerned that they're going to get married. The reason they wouldn't get married is because the... uh, Everybody thought it would cause another religious war, like England was Protestant, Spain was Catholic, and if she married another Protestant, um, that was not good for Spain. If she married someone from Spain, it was not good for England, supposedly. So um, they were together a lot, and uh, in in 1557, a rumor went around that they were already married, but more likely it came later. Dudley finally gave up and married a woman named uh, Amy Robesart, and uh, uh, Amy stayed at the castle with the queen, and one day she fell down the stairs and died, and uh, the queen made a joke of it, basically. This was September 8, 1560, and on September 12, 1560, four days later, Elizabeth and Dudley married at Lord Pembroke's house. uh, She must have been about five months uh, pregnant, so uh, she kind of had to get married at that point. The uproar when the rumors went around was crazy, and so instead they said the baby was born to uh, Nicholas Bacon and his wife Anne Bacon, and uh, that they would raise them then. The, they just always had jokes about uh, Sir Francis Bacon. He should have been uh, Francis Tudor, like the Queen's last name, but um, he didn't like the name Bacon, and his mother called him Hamlet, the little ham. So, um, and there's a <laughs> lot of reasons to believe that, um, you know, why he was kind of not uh, registered like with um, the Tudor family, but uh, to Nicholas uh, Bacon. And uh, the when um, when Nicholas Bacon left a will, he left it to everybody in the family, but. Francis Bacon, and people say because he probably assumed that um, Bacon was going to be recognized by the Queen, and uh, and he would be able to take care of himself. But it wasn't true. The Queen didn't recognize him. Sometimes avoided him, and uh, he would, um, I think, kind of tease the the way of the currency then, the custom. When he got married, it was in purple, and that was actually illegal for anyone that wasn't a royal to get married. 
in purple. They couldn't wear purple, period. Then there was laws that were passed. Um, uh, Mother Mary Dowd claimed the queen was pregnant with Dudley's child. She was arrested. Uh, other people were punished cruelly uh, because of making that claim. So uh, I really believe the whole story is true. And uh, and Bacon was probably the most disappointed Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. I mean, uh, just think, you know, your mother's the queen and you have uh, no rights to anything. Although he was very close to the court, he certainly wasn't a pauper. You know, I mean, he he uh, didn't grow up a peasant. I mean, he was, you know, uh, in, incredibly educated and one of the main uh, movers and shakers in terms of intelligentsia. Uh, you know, I guess of uh, of his time. So, in that sense, uh, he uh, made good in his life. Um, so, how did he finally meet his end? Uh, did he die penniless? Was he successful? I mean, didn't he end up? I think I read uh, John D. passes along the torch to him, and he continues Rosicrucianism. Um, am I remembering that right? Um, yes, actually, he. He was in Cambridge, and uh, he started sort of a circle of his own called the Order of the Helmet, and the helmet was with Pallas Athena. Pallas Athena was the goddess that when she put her helmet on, she could make herself invisible. So, And part of the steps in that, a separate degree of the order, was the Rosy Cross. So um, Rosy Cross was considered invisible, and him and John Dee wrote books uh, for Rosicrucianism that they brought straight to Germany before they um, circulated in England. And there, there is a carving showing John Dee uh, handing um, a lamp over a gravestone to Francis Bacon. And so some people believe that um, that kind of passes along the knowledge. Well, let me ask you this, Stephen, and if I'm, you know, making too much of it, um, tell me. But it seems like there are these hints that uh, these guys were not, um, I mean, look, you know, maybe they, I mean, a lot of them were gay, some of them were, you know, womanizers, philanderers, and all of that. But above all, they were educated men. Um, you know, for the time especially, and, um, you know, they laid the groundwork for a lot of, you know, our future sciences. But there are these little hints that they weren't anti-woman, you know, it's a, or an anti-feminine. You, you know, you have St. Bernard, um, you know, you just had this, you know, he names his, his group the, uh, after Athena, um, you know, I think the Templars even had some, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, we, it, it, if, if memory serves me right, from research on Mary Magdalene, she was always associated with the rose, and it's the rosy cross, and um, so were they um, more egalitarian in their thinking, um, or were they just, you know, uh, misogynist and patriarchal, uh, you know, just like, the, you know, the religions of the day. Not that they were religious, but, you know, I don't know if I... Did, did, did that question make sense? It does, and I think I think it's not true that they were like that, um, although a lot of the women married men that were much older, and so I guess, you know, in a household like that, um, the father was the boss or whatever, 
But um, I don't think they had anything against women being in the order or attending uh, different, you know, journeys or whatever. Well, and, and, you know, it makes me think, too, and, you know, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. We haven't gotten to the founding fathers and Rosicrucianism in America yet, but while we're on the subject of women, um, the Library of Congress, I mean, I was amazed when I went in there that uh, no one I knew up until that point had told me that uh, everywhere you go in there, um, all the sciences, virtues, um, everything is in a feminine face. I mean, the walls are covered from floor to ceiling with the feminine face as, uh, you know, a representation of uh, all knowledge, basically. And, um, and, and that sort of makes me also think about all the feminine uh, connections to the founding fathers in the United States, and I, I don't know. It, and when I used to have a group in Los Angeles, you know, sometimes we worked with the with the local Freemasons, and they talked about ISIS, and they had images of the feminine, um, you know, in their uh, in their halls. And it, I don't know. It just feels like to me there's some sort of undercurrent of the feminine. I mean, did they see the feminine as God? Uh, I mean, I know a lot of the, the founding fathers were deists, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know, help me here. Am, am I making too much of it, or, there, or was there some undercurrent where they revered the feminine? I think because the Catholic Church was so powerful, it, it was an undercurrent. that They couldn't be out in the open. And like when they built Washington, D.C., there's like 80 zodiacs in hiding and things like that. Um, there's a lot of statues of, um, I think they call it the Black Madonna, that it's like a mother and child, uh, only they're black, and right. that was considered to be Mary Magdalene. So I think um, a lot of people, especially in groups like this, uh, would have been more uh, in tune with that the feminine exists and uh, we shouldn't uh, you know, replace it with the... Um, Holy Spirit in the Catholic Church. One interesting story is... Okay. Willi- I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Will- William Penn was a person that uh, he was kind of anti-king and anti-all these rules and things like that, and uh, almost by accident he was given a ton of land in Pennsylvania, and he decided that he wanted to allow any religion that wanted to come uh, to Pennsylvania to come from Europe. One of them is the Moravians, and uh, they had some strange um, customs and still do. And there was even a book, Jesus Was a Woman. <laughs> That's a, a book in the, in the Moravian religion. So, And he formed Philadelphia by the mouth of two rivers in Pennsylvania uh, because he wanted it to be like, um, I think like Babylon. And uh, so... He'd, um, he allowed all these people to come over. One group was um, the Moravians. Another group was followers of, of Father uh, Kelpius. The Kelpius people lived in caves along Wissacricken Creek in Pennsylvania, and then they moved the whole religion out to Ephrata. When, Bacon, when uh, Franklin was composing texts and everything uh, for the government, for the new government, he needed extra printing, and who did he go to? He went out to Ephrata 
to the Rosicrucians with George Washington, and uh, together they made a deal for whatever they wanted printed. Hmm. Interesting. So these were uh, these were open-minded guys. Um, I mean, uh, it, it's it's really strange. Um, when you, especially when you see, you know, the religious right uh, trying to stake a claim to the founding fathers, you know, who were deists and claim they were all Christians, um, you know, I, I, you know, maybe it's like this impeachment hearing that's going on. You know, there were just ostriches burying their head in the sand and and you know trying to rewrite history, but it seems like you know these were some open-minded guys. Uh, you know, as opposed to, I mean, because uh, I mean, the, but but I guess where I where I don't understand where things deviated was, you know, the Puritans that came over from England and founded the United States, um, or you know, some of those colonies, um, they were anything but anti-religious, though. I mean, they were like the fundamentalists. Um, so I, I'm wondering, how did the founding fathers escape that Puritanism? Or did they just kind of do their own thing underground like they did over in England? Um, it depended on who we're talking about. Like uh, Thomas Jefferson was never out there as far as being a leader of anything. In fact, after he got done um, writing the text that he did, he went back home to Virginia. He didn't want to take part in the war. George Washington... Um, he was a Freemason. He regularly wore his um, different articles, and uh, and at the same time, he was out there. Um, he'd ride a white horse into battle when he knew he was the target. He, they, they wanted to burn down his house, and he knew that was a risk um, while Tom Jefferson was staying home. George Washington had his own pew at Williamsburg, and he'd go to church there, and as soon as they brought out the communion, he would get up and leave. And I just find that interesting. I don't know if that meant he didn't believe in Jesus and just one God, um, but that's what he did. Yeah, okay. Um, so uh, one other thing I want to ask you about before we get a little, you know, into Rosicrucian America um, is what, you know, they keep talking about the occult practices of the Rosicrucians. Um, I don't know if maybe the definition for occult is different than what I'm thinking, but what sort of occult practices did they actually do? Um, they had, like, initiation ceremonies and everything. Uh, I don't think they did anything too strange. I think it was just a matter of uh, trying to remain in secret. And uh, they um, they met in meetings that no one went to. Um, I was talking about the uh, they were considered the invisibles when they uh, started the Rosicrucians, and that's because nobody could see what they were up to. And that later formed... Um, the Royal College in England, so they kind of came out of the closet, and uh, they have meetings and uh, they um, talk about different sciences. Uh, Sir Christopher Wren, who kind of rebuilt London after the Great Fire, um, D. Of course, wrote the uh, book on navigating the world and talked the Queen into um, thinking she has rights in the New World. Um, and these people didn't come over for the gold. They didn't come over for the riches or anything like that. And uh, 
they just came over because it was a new place where they could kind of practice uh, their life in freedom. The um, Bacon wrote a book called The New Atlantis, and it's uh, really thinly disguised as it's North America and how when people come over, they can, you know, be whatever they want to be. Okay, so so this is how we start to segue over into, the, you know, the influence of Rosicrucians in America. Um, these these influential guys who had, you know, who were Rosicrucians, who were alchemists, who were in all these different groups like the, uh, you know, the Invisibles, the School of Night, the Order of the Helmet, you know, all of these different things. They have the ear of the Queen, who's got the purse strings, and they talk her into. Um, you know, uh, claiming a stake in the new world. And so that's the beginning of it, right? That's right. They formed um, the Royal Virginia Company, and uh, not necessarily with her money all the time, uh, often with the different people in the royalty, um, like the Earl Southampton. uh, He would put up the money. Uh, Raleigh and um, Drake would put up their money to do you know what they wanted to do and it's interesting to know that uh, one of the groups that Bacon was in uh, they accidentally wanted to go to Virginia but they landed in Bermuda in a storm and uh, so now the um, the Bermuda currency became the hog money in other words for Bacon right right well, well, so all right. So this raises a good point, for, and maybe you can explain it to me. If Elizabeth didn't wasn't the one financing the expeditions, I mean, why didn't these guys just go claim the territory for themselves? Or is that a crazy thought? I mean, um, why would they claim it for England? I'll never know for sure, but I, I think you couldn't get out of England if the Queen said you couldn't leave. And uh, that navigation was that tight, so um, that's why they people had to get permission to do a lot of different things. I think the other okay. thing, that there was not a lot of royal uh, voyages, uh, like, say, Frobisher, who it, Elizabeth sent over, and uh, some of the other ones. Um, there were people coming over to fish for cod before anyone thought there was a continent there, which is why history is kind of distorted. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what I was taught, uh, you know, in school decades ago about American history uh, is just so warped. And, you know, then you pick up a book like yours and you read, you know, all of these other little tidbits that you were never taught. And, uh, you know, that old saying comes back to me, you, you know, uh, you're smart if you realize you know nothing. <laughs> uh, you know because there's there, there's just there's just uh, probably more that we don't know. Um, so all right, so um, so uh, the United States is starting to form. You know, in the colonies, what influence did the, these Rosicrucian guys? You know, Ben Franklin, uh, uh, William Penn. You know, what did you know, what were they doing um, aside, I guess, from shaping what turns out to be the Constitution and starting the American Revolution War? I mean, is that where it goes? Um, you know, they're sort of the instigators with their thoughts of freedom and, you know, they don't want to live under, a, you know, theocracy or a dictator anymore? 
Uh, I think that's absolutely true, especially people like Ben Franklin and George Washington and William Penn, who I don't get, I, I don't think gets enough credit. Uh, there were other people there that were just for themselves. Like, I like the story of John Hancock, who um, he was the biggest shipholder in the New World at the time, and uh, he was a Freemason, but at two different lodges. One was for ship owners, and uh, obviously the wealthier of the people, and the other was for guys that worked on the ships. And uh, his first question would be when someone um, introduced someone for a job, he'd say, is he on the level, meaning is he uh, one of us? And if he was, chances are he'd get the job. Interesting that, that where that old saying comes from. Um, yeah, I found it really interesting in your book. There were a lot of little tidbits like that that just, uh, you know, made me smile. The hog money, uh, you know, all the, other, uh, all the other little things like that. It, it was really funny, interesting little tidbits. Um, well, Stephen, we're going to take a break um, right now. And when we come back, I want to talk more about uh, Rosicrucians in America and, um, and, and then I want to get into the Jules Verne and Fleming connections as well, you know, because that's, uh, you know, more modern and, uh, you know, maybe more names people will recognize. So uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Um, and for listeners, uh, here's something about Joe Carson's film, uh, Dancing with Gaia. tell you about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. This is from Janina Renee, author of Playful Magic and By Candlelight. Dancing with Gaia is a magical, transformative film. Just watching it can alter your perception of the physical body and the energy field of the goddess Earth. Next time you are taking a walk or simply gazing across the landscape, you might find yourself affecting mystical fusion with the local earth forms or making deep contact with the spirits of place. If you want to engage deeper with the consciousness of the earth, there are a number of detailed but simple how-tos. What's more, seeing the exquisite works of these Gaia-inspired artists could energize you to start working on some of your own spiritually expressive projects. The DVD was shot in some of the most powerfully sacred sites in the Western world. It comes packaged with a 45-page color booklet, which goes even deeper into the ideas and techniques in the film. The package is just $20, and you can get it from dancingwithgaia.com. Uh, so remember, listeners, uh, Dancing with Gaia uh, is available only at dancingwithgaia.com. 
Um, also, too, if you uh, have been with me the last couple shows, I know sometimes uh, you folks listen to the shows out of order from the archives, um, so this may be the first time you're hearing about this, but uh, I am going to be moving the show to 11 a.m. on Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific instead of 6 p.m. Pacific. Um, I just find that I'm getting so many guests uh, from over in Europe, and that uh, just makes it so much easier. Uh, for me to interview them at a, uh, at a, at a reasonable time. So um, you can do two things. You can either mark your calendar for 11 a.m. on Wednesdays, or you can go to the show page for Voices of the Sacred Feminine on Blog Talk. And if you look around a little bit, you'll see something that says follow. Click that button and uh, provide your email address. And uh, once a week, you will get a notice in your email inbox of this week's uh, current show. Uh, next week, uh, we have two shows. Uh, we have a show on Monday and a special Christmas show or solstice show on uh, Thursday the 26th. Uh, the Monday show is at 6 o'clock. Uh, the Thursday show, the day after Christmas, is at 11. And then the following week, uh, because of the holiday, uh, the show is going to be on Monday the 30th uh, at 6 p.m. Then from then on out, uh, it's going to be most days at 11 a.m. Pacific, uh, usually on Wednesdays, uh, unless I have to accommodate uh, a guest schedule. And... Um, I am really happy with uh, some of the shows that we have coming up for you. We have uh, uh, Goddess in the Bible, which is the special show uh, right after Christmas. Uh, I think you will be surprised all the places the feminine is mentioned in the Bible that you probably don't know about. Uh, we're going to have a show on Daughters of Alcoholic Mothers, uh, Modern Minoan Paganism, uh, Escaping the Wasteland, When God Had a Wife, Love Activism, uh, How to Live Well Despite Capitalist Patriarchy, uh, Dominionism, and Opus Dei, The Dangers of Those Two Fundamentalist Christian Groups, especially since uh, they have connections in high office these days. Uh, we're also going to do a show on capitalism and Christianity versus democratic socialism, nature and paganism, uh, Jesus and the Ancient Mystery Cult, Women Warriors Through Time, and lots of other good stuff. So uh, I don't think you want to miss that stuff. So uh, make sure you click the follow button. And uh, getting back to tonight's show, uh, if you're just tuning in, I'm uh, talking to uh, Stephen Sora. He's got the new book out, uh, Rosicrucian America. You definitely want to hear the first part of the show. Uh, he's also got uh, other interesting books out, The Lost Treasures of the Knights Templar, Secret Societies of America's Elite. Um, he's been on TV, on the History Channel, um, Holy Grail in America, also America Unearthed. Uh, he lives in eastern Pennsylvania. So, um, Stephen, let's uh, get back to uh, Rosicrucians in America. Um, what do you think are the most important things we need to know about uh, the influence on, um, you know, on the country from Rosicrucians? Well, I, I think um, the history of America kind of displays that some groups and some religions uh, lose the true purpose of the founder or the founders of that group. And uh, I think everybody in early years was kind of uh, for peace, for openness, for ability to do whatever you want. And then later, um, 
groups formed out of uh, Rosicrucians and Freemasons that were kind of the opposite. During the Civil War, the Knights of the Golden Circle were a group that they wanted to refight the Civil War, and they had um, the Knights of the Golden Circle had a council. More than half of the council were Rosicrucians. And an odd story, the uh, one of the Rosicrucians that was in it was Jesse James, and he would rob banks all over the country, wouldn't keep the money for himself. He'd bury it in different stashes uh, in case they started, you know, the war started again. Uh, they'd have funding for it. In the early wow. days, it was um, like the, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> in early no, days, uh, there were a lot of people that were Rosicrucians that um, they would tell say like, oh, Robert Boyle's a Rosicrucian, but I'm not, but he would be. And uh, Robert Boyle would say the same thing. That uh, So they kind of stayed half in hiding, like they let people know they were. Later on, um, because such groups sometimes weren't popular, that's why we have people like, um, say, Daniel Defoe. He, the first page of his book said, my family started as... Robinson, um, basically as Rosicrucian, and uh, he had uh, hints in his book that, um, you know, he was, or the text is being written with a little bit of a theme. Jules Verne said, we we all have written Robinson. He was um, called, he wrote a book about a person called The Fog, who uh, was Phineas Fogg, who crossed the world in 88 days, and uh, Phineas Fogg, although he was a character, the uh, he was in a group called the Reform Club, in other words, RC. And uh, the Fogg was a group that Jules Verne was in that was kind of secretive, like another invisible college of people. So um, there's just a lot of things that hiding in open sight. Um, my favorite story is of James Bond. James Bond's mother had the last name uh, Rose-Cross, and uh, he um, took his, like, um, target to be Dr. D. Dr. D was also a spy master in England, and he wrote, uh, when he wrote to the Queen, he wrote to M, which is like in the Bond novels. Um, he drew two little eyes on things where he said, for your eyes only, and he was regarded as 007. So uh, Walsingham was the spy leader, and, and he numbered everybody, and so D was 007. It's like so strange that there's stuff like that. And um, Bond also has like a lot of uh, feminine themes. Like if it wasn't for uh, a woman helping him find himself or finding an answer, uh, he was in trouble. And that's usually how he got out of it. Hmm, interesting. Um, so these guys... Again, you know, I'm not trying to make them something they're not, but it seems like these guys were not your typical, um, you know, I don't want to say they weren't patriarchal. I'm sure they probably were patriarchal. But it seems like they were they were more um, open-minded. They weren't this... Um, you know, uh, keep the woman in the in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant kind of guys. Um, 
and again, maybe it, it just depends on on who you're talking about is is as well. But it seems it I don't know. It seems like they uh, they were they were. Uh, oh God, I, I I'm probably putting my foot in it now. But I'm getting the idea that they tended to be a little bit more liberal in their thinking. I definitely agree with you there. I'm I'm sure there are people that were patriarchal. Uh, now in the United States, we have two groups of Rosicrucians that are the largest. One's here in Pennsland, Pennsylvania, and they're secretive. They don't have any list. You can't get on the property, uh, even though there's some neat stuff there, like a pyramid. And uh, you never really hear about anything they're doing. In California, there's the AMORC group of Rosicrucians, and uh, I think they have 15,000 members, and they do publish lists of who attends meetings and things like that. So... Uh, yeah, it's hard to put a stamp on it so and what, say, it's, say it's one thing. So it's thing. not like, um, so, well, by the list of the people that are in the West Coast, um, does it say anything about what Rosicrucians believe or are involved in today? I mean, would we recognize any of the names? Um, I would bet there's a lot of names that, uh, you know, we wouldn't recognize because they're just not, the kind of elite people that might be in other circles. Sirhan Sirhan was one person that went to the California Rosicrucians. I don't think he joined. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I'm not suggesting um, so they, he was part of a conspiracy or anything. Right, 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 right. Um, so there was. Um, uh, well, I mean, do we? So do we know much about the? The, the modern-day Rosicrucians? Well, the funny thing is, uh, t today it's hard to keep anything a secret, and one day I was just researching online, and uh, I came across uh, a college professor teaching what the Rosicrucian initiation was and showing symbols and, and everything else that, um, you know, you would think that you would, someone else would be privy to, but not you. So, uh, like, you know, so would the, like the Skull and Bones, you know, that's a group we've, that, you know, that's sort of, uh, I think maybe a lot of people have heard of. Um, any overlap with the Rosicrucians, or that's something totally different? Not that I know of. I think it's totally different, and I think Skull and Bones are a group of people that um, they have to be, you know, kind of pledged by someone that's really wealthy and a member, and uh, once you get into it, um, I don't know how much money it is now, but I know you, you're given a big check, and uh, you're kind of pledging yourself to each other to um, to protect each other, kind of like the early uh, Knights Templar or Freemasons, that uh, your other members should have your back. Right, right. So... Um so what would you say has changed among Rosicrucians um, in recent times? Uh, I would say the biggest thing is a um, little less secrecy and um, a little more, you know, probably more Rosicrucians than ever before. And is it mostly for men or, you know, have they opened their ranks to women? Uh, the Pennsylvania one, I believe, is men. California one, it's probably women too. Yeah, I, 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 because I think I was actually invited to join, but um, I didn't feel like I had the 
the time to commit to it. And um, I don't know, I just didn't know for sure if, if, if it was really, uh, there was really equality among the genders, you know. Um, anyway, um, so I want to know about this uh, Stonehenge-like uh, uh, monument setting, whatever you call it, in Georgia. Uh, tell us about that, and um, it, it, what does it have to do with the Rosicrucians? Uh, the uh, it was a guy that came down to the town in Georgia called Elberton, and uh, he gave orders to a banker and a lot of money to have these uh, Stonehenge-like uh, stones put up and different inscriptions. Oddly enough, his name was also started with R.C., so uh, he's kind of not keeping it a secret that uh, he's in the Rosy Cross. And um, the Guidestones then tell of ten things they want to happen in the world, and some of them are redundant, but the first one is maintain human humanity under 500 million in, um, in perpetual balance with nature. And it's like, oh, 500 million. But when you consider the 7.5 billion people, um, what happens to the 6.5 of us that are not invited to stay? So uh, that's right. a little bit spooky. Interesting. Um, so uh, what's the name of that? If listeners wanted to uh, Google it and see what it looks like and, um, you know, what's, uh, what's written on the stones, um, what is it called? The Guidestone Monument. The Guidestone Monument. Okay. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I can't let you go before I ask you uh, more about uh, the Knights Templar, since uh, you did write the other book, The Lost Treasure of the Knights Templar. Um, I know you, I saw you, you know, just made passing references to Oak Island, and I, I have to admit I'm a fan of the show. And um, do you have any personal thoughts about, um, you know, if they're going to find anything or, uh, I, I don't know, do you know anything about that or <laughs> am yes, I assuming I, too much? that I, I wrote on Oak Island <laughs> and I think it's a treasure that came over from the Templars. Then it went to the Sinclair family who became the hereditary guardians of Freemasonry and then they brought it over um, Probably 1440, they brought it over to Nova Scotia and buried it. The uh, will they ever find anything? That's a good question. It, it could have been taken out, but um, people think there's two main treasures. One would be what was looted by the temples from Jerusalem. The other might be the works of Sir Francis Bacon. And two people that were really close to Bacon uh, said that they would protect his works after he's dead, and. Uh, I think one was William Raleigh, and he came to Nova Scotia. They, uh, Bacon had written that flasks of uh, mercury uh, could preserve documents, and empty flasks were found all over the island when they first started exploring it. So uh, that could be true, too. There's also a place called the Bruton Vault in Virginia, which um, there's a whole group of people that believe that uh, the Bacon works are buried underground there. And... Uh, the uh, church had actually been moved, so the first time they dug for it, uh, they couldn't find anything. And uh, now the Rockefeller family owns it, so uh, getting permission might be out of the question. Right. But I do wow. I think you know, it's, it's possible that uh, there are such treasures in this part of the world. 
Yeah. Well, I kind of, you know, my husband and I keep saying, I bet they've already found whatever there is there, you know, and they're just dragging this show out, uh, you know, dangling a carrot in front of us, you know, week in and week out and year in and year out. Um, You know, I I hope they get it over with, (laughs) you know, know, and I hope it's not like Al Capone's Capone's fault. Nothing in it, you know. Mm. I just think that um, Um, – they keep doing the same thing over and over again. Okay, let's do this. Let's drain the swamp. Let's make a coffee dam, and uh, and then they go to the next thing. And I w- I would think intelligent men with a lot of money could come up with a much better plan than uh, let's just go everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I hear you. Um, I wonder about that. It does seem like this season they are finding more and more quickly. Um, it seems like they've delegated a lot of the projects, and you're seeing more action um, already this season than last. You know, maybe there were complaints. Um, so anyway, well, we'll see. You know, I just uh, I would like to think this is the last year, and they'll finally get to the bottom of it. Um, but as far as the Templars go, um, Steve, um, uh, do you think the Templars got the Holy, uh, uh, what do you call it, the Ark of the Covenant and everything out of um, out of Jerusalem, and you know it got whisked away to Rosalind Chapel? I mean, um, you know, any thoughts on that? I think that's exactly what happened, and the Sinclairs. Uh, were connected to the Roslyn Chapel, and they had their uh, they had at least two castles there, and uh, they have vaults underground and, and caves where things were hidden. And I think long before Luther started um, Protestantism, there were other people that were so anti-Catholic that the Sinclair family had a, a fear that they were going to come and steal all uh, the items. You know, some some groups believe Catholics are going to go to hell because. <laughs> Um, they believe in idols, and uh, but I think it, they believe in idols in a different way than some. You know, I have. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to. I'm, I'm not connecting the dots there. You're going to have to um, make the connections for me. I, I don't understand. Well, the pre-Protestant groups were, of course, against the Catholics, and they. Um, if they started looting churches and taking all the sacred objects, they might finally get to Roslyn and take those. And so that was the need to uh, bring it to the New World and hide it. Ah, uh, okay. In the 15th right. century, they, they brought over, um, somebody thinks they brought over a ton of Welsh miners because they had invited these people to uh, build the Roslyn Temple, but work didn't start for four years. So what do you need 100 men or however many, you know, getting paid for a hundred uh, for four years uh, without them accomplishing anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it was so much easier to hide stuff back then. I was thinking about Elizabeth's baby bump, you know. I mean, I know they had big dresses back then, but she was, you know, she hid that pregnancy from the masses, so to speak, although, you know, I guess the inner circle knew. Um, I mean, you could do so many things that, you know, and not be in the eye, um, you know, where today uh, I don't think we can keep, you know, anything private. Uh, but I, you know, but I, I do, you know, I keep thinking, gee, what if they do find the Ark of the Covenant on uh, on Oak Island? Wouldn't that be something? But uh, I don't know. I, it, it's like the treasures that are supposed to be under the paw of the Sphinx. I think if they did find it, it would probably get whisked away. 
uh, because maybe they wouldn't want history rewritten according to whatever they found, you know? Right. <laughs> I think the reason so I, I, I'm a cynic. The, the Catholics are accused of worshiping things is that um, they had um, different places where Mary Magdalene was built. They stole her bones. They brought them somewhere else. And uh, these burial zones were like the subject to getting robbed all the time. So it makes sense that the Sinclair family as guardian of these objects would be very paranoid about it. I, I right. wrote a book called well, um, Treasures from Heaven, and it's about uh, the trade in relics and things like that, uh, all the way down from, like, you know, the Ark of the Covenant to little things. So my wife's name is Teresa. There's St. Teresa of the Rose or something in France. I got on uh, one of the websites and ordered uh, a reliquary with uh, part of her hair in it, and I got it in like three days, and I'm thinking, this is crazy. Like you, like it could be real. Oh, um, yeah, they said, somebody said something like, if there were only 12 apostles, how come 67 apostle graves are in Germany? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it became a cottage industry. I mean, if you had a relic from a saint, um, then people flocked there, and the church got rich, the town got rich, you know, putting up visitors. Um, so it, it, uh, it, you know, it, all, you know, it became commodities, and you know, you really never knew uh, if any of it was the real thing. Um, but you know, switching gears just a little bit, I'm thinking you going back to this idea of the feminine and who are Rosicrucians today. Um, if I had to guess, I would bet Dan Brown and James Cameron um, are potential uh, potential Rosicrucians because you think about Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. Where did they end up? And, you know, at Rosalind Chapel, uh, insinuating that the woman was the new Messiah, if, if memory serves. It's been a long time, but I think that's, you know, was kind of the end there. And James Cameron, um, I read something about his wife was very god. Or was it Dan Brown? One of maybe it was Dan Brown's wife was goddess oriented. Um, yeah, I think it was Dan Brown's wife. But also James Cameron with Avatar. Um, I mean, I thought Avatar the movie was like Goddess Church, quite frankly. And um, I don't know. I just I think if if I were to um, I'd, I'd like to see if their names are on that list. Uh, of Rosicrucians uh, on the West Coast. It would be interesting. Hmm. Um, okay. Well, um, anything else, Steve? Uh, oh, you know what? Uh, we forgot to talk about Shakespeare. I don't want you to go till we uh, briefly talk about that a little bit. Do you Do you have another few minutes? Sure. The uh, The thing with Shakespeare is uh, um, someone made a myth out of him. It was he was just a regular. Um, farmer or whatever the uh he couldn't read he couldn't write he owned no books he uh his daughter couldn't read his parents couldn't read the whole town was like a backwater and uh, i think he met the earl of southampton uh through another person in the group the earl of southampton basically said we need a sh a shill to we can write our own works and have them played in the theater and, uh, you know, uh, Pallas Athena kind of was the shaker of the spear in uh, Sir Francis Bacon's group. 
So I have a feeling uh, the Earl of Southampton came along to Shakespeare and um, and introduced himself and then went to Sir Francis Bacon and said, you're never going to believe this. <laughs> and uh, Earl of Southampton paid Shakespeare an enormous amount of money uh, the first year his works came out. And you didn't make money writing plays in those days, but Shakespeare did. When, after Shakespeare died, um, there was a statue of him in his own town with him being like a money lender, a guy holding a bag of grain, uh, you know, a merchant, a farmer, whatever. And uh, and later on, when this other person said that uh, Shakespeare came from this town, we could have a cottage tourage industry here, just like you mentioned with the relics. And uh, so they changed the statue, and it was a man holding a book. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, when I read your book, it all made sense um, because, you know, I had heard those stories that Shakespeare didn't really write his stories. So it, it, from your book, it sounded like there might have been multiple sources uh, that wrote under his name uh, because he, uh, I mean, because the, these famous men we've already talked about, um, they were in the Queen's Court, and they were too high profile to be writing some of the stories that Shakespeare wrote. So he was, uh, he was their cover. Um, they got their exactly. message out in their plays, and Shakespeare is just, uh, just the cover guy, and Shakespeare gets rich, being their cover story, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's kind of interesting that um, Shakespeare died when Walter Raleigh got out of prison. And uh, what happened? Ben Johnson was taking care of Sir Walter Raleigh's son when uh, when he was in prison. And um, the two of them knew Shakespeare had it in for Walter Raleigh. In fact, works of Shakespeare. Um, were saying that they were in the dark uh, house of night and they were atheists and all that, and and that got Raleigh in so much trouble. So Shakespeare gets uh, Raleigh gets out of prison. A few days later, uh, Shakespeare does his will, and then he goes out to dinner with Ben Jonson and uh, Michael Drayton, and he dies after dinner. And so people think huh. uh, he died of eating too much, or he was poisoned, one or the other. Yeah, I don't. I don't think people die of eating too much. So that would mean Ben Ben Johnson, on behalf of Raleigh, kills Shakespeare. Is that is that right. the yep. scenario? The story is okay. really funny. Okay. Ben Johnson was the poet laureate of England at the time, and uh, so you would think, you know, there's some pleasant guy writing post prose and everything. Uh, instead, um, he was a guy that challenged people to a fight and killed them with his bare hands. And then uh, he took uh, Watt Riley, the son, to Europe, supposedly to learn, and he said all he was taught was drinking and um, carousing. So um, they weren't exactly uh, the kind of elite we would think they would be. Right, right, right. They weren't these uh, genteel uh, uh, statesmen like gentlemen, they uh, they could be ruffians as as well. Interesting, uh, but yet he writes poetry. Um, so uh, so so Shakespeare dies. Um, so they've lost their beard now. They've lost the guy 
uh, for the cover story. So I guess after Shakespeare died and less some some found stories came out posthumously, um, that was the end of them having Shakespeare as their cover, I guess. And also the Globe Theater burned down, <laughs> which uh, kind of stopped the plays from being put on there. But, yeah, it was okay. the end of any Shakespeare write, writing. And then um, the woman that I mentioned, Mary of Pembroke, she put together a folio, the first folio of Shakespeare's works, and uh, he was dead now, and it was the first time he was actually named on uh, anything. And uh, she wrote to her friend, um, we have the man Shakespeare here. So, in other words, we have everything that by Shakespeare, and um, I guess they planned on making money out of it. It was dedicated to her two sons, which just doesn't make sense. Well, and what you said in your book, too, was, uh, and, and correct me if I misunderstood this, back then, when these plays were written, when poems were written, they didn't necessarily get attributed to a particular author. So that would make it kind of easy, wouldn't it, to write stuff and not have it attached to you? Um, yeah, and I'm trying to think of who, but I think it was the Earl of Essex. Um, he was attributed to the play to, for Richard II, and in Richard II, it basically uh, has a king being killed, and uh, and so she had him executed, and she said at the time, uh, I think I'm Richard II. So in other words, she was so upset that uh, showing a king getting killed uh, kind of reflected what people might do to her, because she was threatened most of her life, right. um, that made it really dangerous to write certain things. Right, right. And, you know, it really does make me wonder how much we really, uh, you know, about the real Elizabeth, you know. I mean, you know, we've had some of these women, um, I'm thinking, oh, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, was it? Did she play Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen? And um, now i got to go back and watch that movie because I bet none of this stuff is in the movie, you know, her connection hmm. to any of these guys and the baby and, you know, killing her lover's wife. And, um, you know, I bet, none, I, I bet it was a, just a totally sanitized uh, version of history, you know, kind of like our Thanksgiving is. You know, we did, uh, it's some made-up story and not really close to the truth. Yeah, there was one person, I think the last name is Wilmot, who came up to Stratford-on-Avon looking for um, Shakespeare's house. And uh, he was so surprised at what the town was like and uh, that Shakespeare had no books. In uh, in one of the works, Shakespeare says, a, a man who loved his books, but he had none. And uh, in the Shakespeare none. works, Stratford-on-Avon is not mentioned at all, and uh, the town where Bacon grew up, St. Albans, uh, is mentioned like 15 times. Well, and you go into the book, I mean, you make a good case. I mean, not only was Shakespeare illiterate, and it, uh, but the people who wrote Shakespearean stories knew other languages, knew other countries, knew about all sorts of things that Shakespeare never delved in, military, falconry, navigation. Um, I can't even think of all of them, but it sounds, well, well Shakespeare uh, was trained to be a butcher. 
I mean, that's what Shakespeare Mm. knew about. His daddy was a butcher, and he apprenticed to be a butcher. And so all of these, uh, these topics that someone would need to know to write the works of Shakespeare, he couldn't possibly have known. I mean, he just uh, didn't move in those circles. He wasn't educated, blah, 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 you know. Um, one thing I, I think it's it, fascinating. One thing that interested me the most was there was different slang at different schools in England, and they were like closed groups, basically. Um, Shakespeare has expressions of slang from Cambridge. Um, the... Uh, he wouldn't have gone there, so um, it had to be done by someone that did go to Cambridge. Right, right. So um, so you think there were multiple writers then, uh, but maybe the primary was um, was Sir Walter Riley and uh, Francis Bacon. Um, am I remembering that right? Uh, the primary was Bacon. Walter R- Riley did some strange writing on his own. Um, he wrote a book, The History of the World, that... Uh, had gods that we don't recognize today, and uh, he spent half his life in prison, or unfortunately. And then when he got out, um, he said he was the Red Cross Knight, and he sailed to the Orinoco River, um, and his son got killed there, and they came back, and he was executed. Now, was he the one that founded the Roanoke Settlement, or was that somebody else? That was him. That was him, yeah, and because that was that was another strange blip in history, you know. Um, well, uh, it, it, by any chance, have you researched um, any of that? I mean, do you have any thoughts on the missing Roanoke settlement? Um, I have thoughts about it on things I read, but I I don't think I could say with any certainty that I believe it went here or there. Uh, with some people that came over here, I think the. Uh, if you were like 50 people that were left in um, Roanoke or whatever, and uh, basically the Native Americans took you in, and over time there was intermarriage and everything and migration, um, that's why it's never been found. Right. That makes sense. That makes total sense. Well, Stephen, it's been fun, and um, wow, your book is just uh, incredible. I mean, it's like one factoid after another. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, I, I had to put it down a little while. It started to exhaust me. There was so much there, but, uh, you know, I can't wait to pick it up again. Um, you really have quite a work there of, uh, you know, in, incredible facts and uh, really interesting stuff, and uh um, you know, I wish you well with it, and you know, thank you for for sharing so much on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, and I was glad to be here. Okie doke. Um, all right then. Good night and uh, happy holidays. Happy holidays to you as well. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, dear listeners, um, I hope you had fun uh, listening to uh, to all of that stuff. And you know what? I really do recommend the All Souls trilogy. It is a fun trilogy about witches and demons and vampires and, um, you know, this group that uh, we were talking about uh, tonight, the School of Night, that so many of these uh, learned uh, guys were in, these Rosicrucian guys, um, you know, that were close to Queen Elizabeth, uh, they're worked into this historical fiction. And um, 
I, I just loved it. In the woman who was married to the Earl of Pembroke, um, whose name uh, I just can't keep in my head, uh, she played a big part in it. And, um, you know, they had a lot of stuff about alchemy and magic. Uh, it really made you think about magic differently. Um, you know, like magic and string theory and stuff like that. Um, and, and genetics. Uh, they actually get into genetics about the genetics of demons and vampires and witches and humans. Um, so anyway, it was uh, it, it was a fun trilogy to read. So if you're looking for something fun, uh, that might be something you want to consider. Um, all right, then. Well, uh, that about does it uh, for me for now. Um, and as I said uh, at the at the uh, at the you know half hour, uh, just be aware that the show time is changing. Uh, the next show is Monday uh, with Laura Perry. We're going to be talking about modern Minoan paganism at 6 p.m. Uh, on Monday, December 23rd, because of the holiday. And then um, on Thursday, the 26th, the day after Christmas, I have Jeanette uh, Blonick and Clancy with me. We're going to be talking about Goddess in the Bible uh, at 11 a.m. And the following week, uh, I have two shows as well. Uh, Shelly Joy is with me, and um, uh, we're going to be uh, you know, on at uh, 6 p.m. on Monday. And then I am going to be with you uh, on Thursday, January 2nd, starting off the new year uh, at uh, 11 a.m., talking about escaping the wasteland. Um, uh, I was inspired by Sharon Blackie's book, If Women Rose Rooted, and she sort of brought me back to my roots and my beliefs and um, um I want to expand on the newsletter that I put out, um, Dancing at the Edges. So uh, that's what you have coming up. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I hope you'll click the follow button. And uh, please go to my website, karentate.net. And um, if this show or any of my work, uh, my talks available on YouTube, uh, the free meditations, uh, my books, um, uh, all of that is out there. Uh, a lot of it is out there free. Um, you know, I'm just going to say if uh, any of my work has been this, uh, you know, the spring that feeds you, uh, I would appreciate um, uh, you acknowledging that. And uh, if you can make a donation uh, at my website, there is a PayPal button there where you can make a donation of any amount. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, have a wonderful solstice. And uh, I'll be back with you on uh, Monday. Okay, good night.